Tensions were thick in Miami less than one week after George Floyd died. There had been peaceful protests and there had been violent uh, protests. And on this particular day, June 1st, Sunday, there was a group of protesters moving toward Interstate 195 with the intent of uh, shutting it down, shutting down traffic and blocking the interstate. They were confronted by a group of state troopers, the Florida Highway Patrol, who were commanded by Captain Roger Reyes. Uh, these troopers were armed and in full riot gear as they faced the uh, protesters. Emotions were high when uh, right in the midst of it, uh, an older black woman drove up on her scooter and parked right between the, the troopers and the protesters. Her name was Renita Holmes, and she was known in the area as uh, an activist, somebody who was willing to speak her mind, willing to speak on behalf of Overtown, where she lived, to the leadership of the community and to the commissioners. And she often uh, spoke to them about institutional racism and gang-related shootings and domestic violence and police brutality and even gentrification. Uh, she was willing to get out there and try to make a difference uh, with her voice in the community. As she pointed to the protesters, she said to the troopers, they all have mamas. And I appreciate your patience and your tolerance in waiting on them. They all have mamas. And then she pointed at the troopers and she said, and y'all all have mamas. And she had a, a few more words to say, but the gist of her comment was that she was making everyone human again in the midst of this conflict. Well, Captain Reyes didn't have any clue who she was, but he was moved by her message. So he broke formation and he walked over to her. And instead of demanding her identification, he leaned over and he said, can I give you a hug? And he did. She returned it in kind. These are two people that diffused a situation through gentleness and kindness. Two human beings with common needs and common interests that spoke a common language and diffused a conflict. If there had been violence, they would have been viewed as enemies. They would have been opposite sides of each other. But instead, there was a moment of coming together, a moment of reconciliation. Reconciliation is when there's peace or harmony between enemies in the midst of conflict. Well, everyone involved was quite moved. In fact, the, the protesters just began to disperse. The law enforcement community in Miami was especially moved. A, a Miami FBI agent said when he saw the, the video, which went viral, he said, this is incredible. This is hopeful for us and our relationship with communities because it touches hearts. Uh, a Miami-Dade police officer said maybe this kind of love being exemplified will motivate giving more money toward the training of officers. 
a Miami police officer and his wife watched the video together and cried. They called it a moment of reconciliation. And they made sure their children watched it as well. A local prosecutor said this type of love and understanding for others is the only way we can approach and get rid of racism. This moment of reconciliation had rippled through everyone involved, whether they were present or saw the video later. If you had been on that scooter, what would you have said to move things toward reconciliation? Or if you had been that trooper, what would you have initiated when you came over to the woman? Would you and I have exhibited gentleness and kindness? Would we have moved toward reconciliation? Would we have recognized the impact that it has in such times? Well, we are not involved in the midst of potential violent protest yet. But we are involved in spiritual warfare, as we looked at a few weeks ago. And we are involved in rescuing hostages from Satan. And to do that, Paul says that we have a ministry and a message of reconciliation. We're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today in this series on civility and cultural engagement. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21, Paul gives us our ministry and our message of reconciliation. We see the world's problems all around us, and we know that the world, that our culture, needs fixing. And we commonly like to say that the world needs Jesus, that Jesus is the only solution to the problems in our world, in our culture. And so the question arises, what are we doing about it? What are you doing about it in our culture? What am I doing about it in our community? Paul is going to point out under the guidance of the Holy Spirit that we have a ministry and a message of reconciliation. And, and basically we see two things here. We see that we are to be people that experience the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. We are to be people that have been reconciled to God and have been transformed and changed. And at the same time, we are to be people that bring the life-changing power of Jesus Christ to those around us, to those that need it, to those that we might even consider enemies, that we might be in conflict with. Those are the two things that Paul points to here. And so the first one we see in verses 16 and 17, and then we're going to jump to 21, that we have to be people who experience the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. Reconciliation happens when there is peace or harmony brought, harmony brought to those in conflict. And all of mankind, Scripture tells us, is born in spiritual rebellion to God. In Romans chapter 5, we're given lots of labels, but one of them is enemies of God. Another one is rebellious. Another one is deserving of wrath. We are not reconciled to God when we enter this world. We are enslaved to sin and death. But God took the initiative to build a bridge through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we trust Christ, our lives are radically changed. 
salvation results in reconciliation with God. We are no longer enemies of God, but we become part of the family of God. We are told that we are actually children of God. And the transformation that takes place through the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, through the power of the gospel and salvation, is one that radically changes us from the inside out. Paul gives us a clue as to that. He, in fact, he declares the truth of it in verse 17. I want to start with chapter 5, verse 17 of 2 Corinthians. And this is what he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. These words are so powerful and so hopeful. That we are new creatures in Christ. We are not who we were, dead in trespasses and sin, deserving of the wrath of God. We are born again. We move from enslavement to sin to a place of enablement through the Holy Spirit. We move from only being able to sin and not to honor God and not to live righteously to be able to walk righteously with God through the power of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what happens when you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You believe that he died on the cross for you, that he died, took on your sins as a sinless substitute, was buried, and rose again. When he died, he paid the penalty that you and I owe for sin. And when he rose again, he rose victorious over sin and death. And when you trust him as Savior, you receive the free gift of eternal life. He enters you through the Holy Spirit right now to lead you. And that starts and lasts for all eternity. You also receive forgiveness of sins. And you are made a new creature in Christ. And that is so exciting. That transformation is something that we need to reflect on occasionally to recall. What changes in us? Well, we retain our physical status, our DNA, our genetics, even our temptations. But old things have passed away. And some of those old things are prejudices and misconceptions. Some of them are worldly perspectives and certainly enslavement to sin. And new things have come, we are told. What are those new things? Well, forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the ability to walk and live righteously, to walk in newness of life. All of these things take place at the moment of conversion. And if you want to research it further, you can go to Ephesians 2 and Romans chapter 6 and, and study this and bring it all together and recognize what God has done in your life when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. It's extremely exciting to recognize and realize that the gospel has power to change people. Especially when we think about being in conflict with the culture and the community around us. And so as a result of recognizing that the gospel has the power to change people, as a, as a result of recognizing that the gospel has changed me and you, as a result of recognizing that the gospel has changed Paul, this is what he says back in verse 16. He says, I, I don't regard people in the flesh any longer. This is what he says in verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. 
Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Paul is saying that, that I don't look at people and see their ethnicity anymore. You know, he was raised to categorize everyone as Jew or Gentile. And this whole Christian thing got in the mix and really messed him up. He's saying, I, I don't look at them according to their circumstances, according to their accomplishments, uh, according to their ethnicity. He said, I look at them spiritually now. Are they a believer or are they an unbeliever? That's how I want to look at them. I don't want to look at them with a, a worldly perspective. I want to look at them with a spiritual perspective. And, and he's going to give up superficial judgments at looking at other people and, and deciding what they are with a, a critical spirit. He's just going to say, hey, is this someone who needs Jesus? Is this someone who has been reconciled to God? And they have Jesus. He looks at them with a new filter. And that filter is their potential as new creatures in Christ. Because he sees himself as totally changed by Christ, and he sees himself as a minister of reconciliation, which we see in the last few verses. So my question for you is, has the gospel changed you? Can you look back and say, yes, I've been transformed? Can you recognize and acknowledge that in your daily life, the power of sin is broken? And that by God's grace, you are able to deal with temptation and sin. You are able to live in a way that allows you to love others unconditionally and to serve them in his strength. Has the gospel changed you? Because here's the logic. If the gospel has changed you, it can change the person next to you. It can change your neighbor that we talked about last week. It can change leaders of social movements. The gospel can change the politician who is different from us. We have to believe that the gospel genuinely changes people. Paul declared it in chapter 5, verse 17. He said it changed his perspective in looking at people in verse 16. And we have to believe it to believe and to act out of the way God has transformed us and to be able to serve others in the community and to be a minister of reconciliation, which he calls us to do. The problem that we have with reconciliation is that we're not always convinced that the gospel which changed us can change other people. We're not quite confident that the transformation that Christ brought about could change people we are in conflict with, whether it's directly face-to-face -face or ideologically or through social media. The gospel makes all the difference when it comes to being transformed. But we don't act like it makes that big a difference. We aren't always willing to show the transformation it's made in us by loving and caring for others and by reaching out to others. We tend to be hopeless when we think about other people locked into their positions in conflict with us. Let me 
remind you of a story you know well, if you've been here for long, uh, about an industry that we just despise, and that's the abortion industry, an industry that kills the unborn child. It is an industry that is easy to be hopeless about and to think, you know, what is the deal with these judges and with these politicians and why can't society see that life begins at conception? And why do we mess around with all these different times of being able to abort people? While many of us would stew and, and grow bitter, Sean Carney started praying and fasting outside a, a, a Planned Parenthood Center in, in Bryan, Texas. And uh, that led to a movement that was launched in 2007 called 40 Days for Life. We've participated in that over the years. Over the years, and in, in, since 2007, they have documented 17,990 lives have been saved. That's documented babies that were not aborted, that people were leaning that way. But because of prayer and fasting, because of people giving vigils at Planned Parenthood and willing to uh, exhibit love and kindness, because of uh, pregnancy centers like PACN willing to offer uh, women's health care free of charge, that many lives have been changed, not to mention all the men and women. They don't have to deal with that abortion in their past. And thank God by his grace that he brings healing to those who have had abortions. And, and uh, they are some of the, the strongest people I know that are most familiar with God's grace. 211 abortion providers have quit the industry over those 13 years. That's incredible to me when we think about God's power. 107 abortion centers have closed. Through one man's faithfulness, a, a person of the gospel, a person who had been transformed, his faithfulness in an area of need, lives have been changed by the gospel. So what seemed like an impossibility with this industry became a plausibility because he prayed and fasted, because he launched a movement, and because uh, thousands, in fact, 63 nations have participated in the 40 Days for Life. It became a plausibility that things would change and became a possibility as we began to see documentation of lives, of people changing their mind. I'm going to keep my baby. That's what happens when we are under the transforming power of Jesus Christ. That's what happens when we allow our lives to be changed and we trust him to bring the change in others. When you look at their 40 Days for Life website, as I did this week, you realize that many of the people on their board and staff are former abortion workers, doctors, nurses, administrators of abortion centers. They have turned from taking life, they have turned to the eternal life that Jesus Christ offers, and they have turned to saving lives by continuing to work with this campaign. That's incredible. All because of the gospel transforming one man and him living it out. Too often, 
How do we handle conflict? Whether it's protesters and law enforcement in, in Miami or things we hear on social media or abortion, too often we would rather be right than reconcile. We can quote stats all day long about when life begins. In fact, 95% of the biologists in the world say it begins at conception. But that hasn't changed the hearts and minds of our politicians. It hasn't changed the hearts and minds of our culture. Not like the gospel has. Too often we'd rather fight fire with fire rather than douse that fire with grace and truth. We like to denigrate people with well-chosen titles. And as I've said before, I'm pretty clever when it comes to that. And not living righteously when I do. If it were simply left to us, we would be hopeless, wondering if anyone could change. But we don't need to be hopeless. We know that God changed us by the power of the gospel. And now in verse 21, Paul makes that clear. How reconciliation comes about. We've experienced life change. Many of us know the life stories of others that have experienced life change. This is what Paul says in verse 21. He made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God targeted Jesus with all of our sin, every sin you've committed, every sin I've committed, every sin ever committed in the world, and he targeted him, imputed that sin to him, put it on him, and Jesus Christ died for that. And now when you place your faith in him, God imputes his righteousness to us. When he looks at you as a follower of Jesus Christ, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And that's pretty powerful. That kind of transformation takes place because of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, because of the power of the gospel. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we can actually live out the righteousness of God. So we've got to remember that people can genuinely be changed. God changed us with the gospel. And if we believe that people can be changed, it makes it a lot easier on us to offer the gospel to others, to believe that people can be reconciled, whether they are people who are against us, people that we have conflict with, people that uh, have hurt us deeply in the past, it helps us believe that people can be changed. And our role, having experienced the life-changing transformation of Christ, is to get the gospel to people. We are people who have experienced the power of the gospel in our lives. And we are to take that gospel to others. We're to bring that to them. We want to be people who bring the life-changing power of Jesus to others. We become instruments of reconciliation the moment that we are reconciled with God. That is the mission, the commission that God has given to us. There's no waiting period. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is a beloved passage when it comes to salvation. And we are reminded that there are no works involved. There's no way we can earn salvation with Jesus Christ. By grace, we are saved by faith. When we place our trust in him, that's the simplicity and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
The very next verse tells us the purpose. There are no good works involved in salvation, but there are good works that we are prepared for as a result of being saved, as a result of being transformed. We have been created for good works in Christ Jesus. Last week, we saw in Galatians 6 that the distinctive love of the believer is a love that goes out to all people, whether they are neighbor or enemies or friends. Today, we see that we are to give the ministry of reconciliation. God has called us to good works with that ministry and that message. And this is how it starts out in verse 18. God has entrusted it to us the ministry of Reconciliation, Paul writes, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The Apostle Paul is the quintessential enemy of God who has been reconciled by the gospel. He was uh, the Jew of all Jews, right? And he had permission, he had the commission to go out and persecute Christians those who were following Jesus, he had the, the permission to murder, to kill Christians. And he was doing that with enthusiastic gusto, believing that he was in the right. And God stopped him. God arrested him on the road to Damascus and completely transformed him, turned his life around and commissioned him. Now that he was reconciled to God to go out with a ministry of reconciliation to challenge others, to plead with others, to be reconciled to God. That's why Paul would look at people differently. He wants us to engage the world around us with the gospel, which reconciles people to God. This verse tells us that God has made them savable. Uh, by dying on the cross for a sin. He, he's removed the barrier to sin. So objectively, that is taken care of. But subjectively, personally, each person has to appropriate the gospel on their own. Everyone is accountable for whether or not they trust Jesus Christ or choose to reject him. We are called simply to be faithful with the message of reconciliation. He gave you that message of reconciliation. He made you a minister of reconciliation, of the life-transforming power of the gospel to the world around you. And in the, verse, the very next verse, Paul expands his thinking, not just the ministry of reconciliation, but the message. He says in verse 19, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The message of reconciliation. That is our calling. And we are the ones that are to go out and tell people that they can receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. We are the ones that are to be ministers of reconciliation with the message. And in the next verse, he expands our thinking on the engagement that we have with the culture. He tells us our mission, but he also tells us the tone in which to do it. In verse 20, we read this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ. Paul keeps it pretty simple. 
He uses a, a word picture here that everyone in that culture could understand. Everyone in our culture today can understand. An ambassador represents a, a country. He or she represents the, the homeland. They live as a foreigner in a, a strange land. An ambassador's calling is to represent his home country, his home values, to represent the people that he works for, and to work toward peace in the country that he is now living. That's the picture that Paul uses. So an ambassador, primary allegiance is to the country from which they've come. So when we send out an ambassador to another country, we don't ask them to take on an allegiance to Russia or to Israel or to South Africa. We ask them to keep their allegiance with our country. And so what Paul is saying, when we go out as God's ambassadors, we are to go out as citizens of heaven, first and foremost. That's our priority, that we are citizens of a multinational, multi-ethnic group of people as citizens of heaven. That is our primary priority, that we represent God in this world and we live by his values and we work toward peace with those in the culture we go out into the land we don't ask everybody to come to the embassy and that's why we often talk about gathering to be equipped gathering to encourage one another to love and good works gathering to challenge one another with love and then to scatter into our sphere of influence, into the mission field which God has given us. That's where we are to be ministers of reconciliation. The ambassador is out and about. She's out there learning and understanding the country and the culture so that she can better know how to talk to them. And we've got to be a people that go out into the land around us. We, we can't be content with our little circle of awareness. We can't go about our day with blinders on that prevent us from seeing the needs and even the injustices of our culture. We need to look, listen, and care. And that is what people changed by the gospel do. We look at others as human beings in need of the gospel. And you, you know how we've talked about all of this as people made in the image of God, people who are hostages to Satan, people who need to hear the gospel. The reason injustice was often a topic for the prophets throughout the Old Testament was because they cared about people, especially those that were the least, the marginalized and, and the misrepresented, the mistreated. We are people who represent God on earth as his ambassadors. And so we want to care about what he cares about. Sometimes that means that we've got to open our eyes and investigate the needs that people have around us. When we listen and understand, when we bring love and caring concern, when we speak truth in love, we bring credibility to the gospel. God uses that to set the table for transformation. He uses that to open hearts so that the Holy Spirit might convict people of their need of a Savior. When we engage with their lives and what is going on inside of them, aware of their troubles, we reveal a love which fits the second greatest commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. We help people when we are not always arguing with them, but when we are showing them there's a different way to live. 
And we can do that because we're transformed by the gospel. Paul sets the tone for our mission of engagement in this verse as well. He says, we beg you, be reconciled to God. We've noted throughout the series that our tone matters, the way that we love on people. He says, we plead with you. Our plea to others in the culture around us is an offer, an invitation to receive Christ, to be reconciled to God. Only God can change hearts. Only God can ultimately change people. And we want society fixed, right? We want our culture changed. We know that the world needs Jesus. So we've got to offer the invitation to the world. We've got to bring them the solution in Jesus. People without Christ are in rebellion to God and seen as enemies. They must believe that he has died in their place for their sin and rose again. That's the simplicity of the gospel message. And so we invite people to be reconciled to God. Their response is up to them. They are accountable for their response before God. We are accountable to be faithful as those who have a ministry of reconciliation and a message of the gospel. And it is so exciting to see people's lives changed when they turn to Jesus Christ and receive him as Savior. Think of how often we write someone off. Think of the times that we see them in their ethnicity or their political viewpoint or through the lens of the grid of how they hurt us. And we no longer remember how we've been changed by Christ. And we don't reach out to them with a ministry of reconciliation. Too often, we want to write them off. Instead, let's choose to be like Paul. People who see others through the potential of being new creatures in Christ. People receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to be faithful as ministers. We're transformed by the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. And that allows us to be civil. That allows us to approach people, with, to listen, love, and care with humility and courage, gentleness, and patience, grace, and truth. We've been changed by the gospel. We've experienced the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, and that allows us to be civil. And we've been given a mission with a ministry and a message to engage the culture with. And so let's be a people that live in loving obedience to Jesus Christ with a love for the world around us. Let's go out and plead with them to be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are convicted by the challenge laid out here. We are convicted by the life of Paul in living it out. And yet throughout it, we see such joy and such hope and such transformation, not only in Paul's life, but just in your empowerment of him to serve you. And we thank you that through your Holy Spirit, you empower us to serve you. You enable us to walk in obedience and the love that you pour into our hearts. We ask for the grace to pour into those people around us, even if they are in conflict with us, even if they are enemies, even if they are of different viewpoints. Lord, we pray that you would give us that type of compassion.